Today is Wednesday. It's April 12th, 2023. It's going to be like 84 degrees tomorrow. It's 2.20, make it 2.37 in the afternoon. And hi, this is John Williams. And this is the Mincing Rascals <laughs> podcast. I'm looking at the video screen. We're all zooming in. And Eric is now at a 90 degree angle. Eric, are, did you just roll your vehicle? Uh, no, I'm 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 all set now. I am um, now <laughs> inverted. Do that. Does that work? Eric's down. cool. Eric's yeah. doing the podcast from his phone in his vehicle for reasons we'll explain in a minute. Anyway, the podcast is rolling now. I'm John Williams. Listen to me weekdays from ten to two. I'm Austin Bird from the Illinois Policy Institute. You can listen to my podcast, America's Talking. I'm Eric Zorn, the safely parked publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, calling in from Wilmette. The Democratic National Convention's coming to Chicago. If you are Mayor-elect Brandon Johnson, who roundly got booed at the Hawks game this week, that means you've got 15 months to scrub the city. I would hope for cooler weather next summer. And plant more flowers, and try and lower the crime rate. This is an opportunity, I agree with what Neil Steinberg said in his Sun-Times article today, to take ourselves down as the poster child of urban woes. It'll be the 12th time, actually, that Chicago has hosted a convention. We're one of the conventioniest cities in America over the years. And the two that people remember, of course, are 68 and 96, the 68 convention for the turmoil and 96 for Bill Clinton and how well the city did. So it is a real opportunity. It's also a real burden. And Eric, you've been on the record for years saying you think the conventions are kind of silly exercises anyway, right? I think they're, yeah, they're grandiose and boring at the same time. Nothing really happens. I mean, Chicago ought to be remembered for the 1952 convention, which is the last one where it was actually interesting politically. I mean, in 68, obviously, there was a lot of interest with the uh, street protests and so on. But 52 was the last time that, that we went into a national political convention and we didn't know the outcome. We went into that convention thinking that it was going to be uh, Senator Keith Alver from Tennessee, who was going to be the Democratic nominee, because he had the most delegates. But uh, as the convention went on, he wasn't able to get over the top. And finally, uh, the Democrats nominated Adley Stevenson to be the sacrificial lamb to run against Dwight Eisenhower. And that, that was the last time a convention was really – any real news got made. I mean, what do you think? Like 2004, Barack Obama's great speech was, was a little bit newsworthy. But for the most part, these are real snooze fest. Well, who said they had to and, be newsworthy? I mean, I don't know that they're snooze festy. You thought that the Republican National Convention, when Donald Trump got nominated, was boring? That was high-stakes drama. That, granted, that was the Republican Convention, but— Well, there was, there was no real drama there. There was no real drama. They knew he was going to be nominated. And there was there was uh, Senator Cruz's speech that was yeah. sort of interesting. and. But but, uh, you know, for the most part, I mean, the, re- and the reason I say that is, that, is that, you know, it's, they're on TV and they eat up hours and hours of, of pundit time that I just think is, is kind of wasted. Now, of course, I'm sure the Mincing Rascals will be all over it. I'm hoping to get our own little tent uh, outside the United Center so we can do daily, daily podcasts. But but uh, but no, they're they're, they're boring and, and they, um, they end up costing about one hundred million dollars between the two of them just in, in extra security measures, evidently. But that doesn't that doesn't get charged to the local people, and and I, I guess the there is a positive economic uh, impact. But as our friend Neil Steinberg pointed out today, it's it's like not even really 
that high up there in terms of the the, the events that are held here, the conventions and so on that come to town. I, right. Uh, what did he say? The sweets, the sweets and snacks convention brings more money in than the Democrats will. But so so I'm glad it's coming to Chicago. I think it's, I mean we're gonna we are probably gonna turn a profit on it in terms of tax money and tourism dollars and so on. It's good. It's all good. But I'm just I'm bored by political conventions. I feel about them the way I do State of the Union addresses. I don't know that they're real news, but I think they can be entertaining, and it's a reminder of who we are and where we are. Well, one, I think we need to now broadcast live from the DNC in 2024. I think that would be really fun. Get our credentials. We should reserve our spots. Yeah. Yeah. We should do that. We should reserve now. Um, But I think uh, a couple things. One, really what tipped the scales was J.B. Pritzker uh, as opposed to – public officials in Atlanta and in New York City said, I'm going to cover every single cost. I'll cover every penny of this. Uh, I think the number I heard thrown around by uh, Tribune reporter A.D. Quigg, uh, friend of the show, was $80 million. And that, uh, when I think the last uh, convention in Charlotte ended with an $8 million deficit that the party had to pay, is extremely compelling. So um, that's that. It's great that a national spotlight is on Chicago, especially if it's a positive national spotlight. I think that's really good for the city. Agreed with Eric that the economic benefits I think are really overhyped. Um, it's great if I was a vendor, you know, near at, at the United Center, right? I would be extremely happy about this. But it's fleeting, right? It's it's kind of a sugar high. It's not like that's permanent jobs that are coming from that. It's also great, I think, that it doesn't seem to require a lot of public funding, if any. Uh, You compare that to maybe a major event like the Olympics, and when Chicago tries to pitch events like that, the city ends up on the hook for debt going decades uh, now for a one-time event that in that case didn't even happen. So that's great. That's Those are my feelings about it. I'm, I'm pretty ambivalent, but it's good for the city. The whole world will be watching again. Yeah. If we do imagine that we're going to have a new administration and try and dig out from the pandemic, this the timing is good. You've got 15 months to sort of get your stuff together here. Let's, let's see how how quickly and how good we can be. And something that Joe Ferguson said to your point about, we got to make sure we're on our best behavior. Um, this was very interesting. The former inspector general, he was in Cranes yesterday, I believe, talking about this. He is- We talked about this on the show, but he issued a report after the 2020 summer of 2020 protests with the real lack of ability for the Chicago Police Department to effectively manage uh, large-scale protests. Now, we have no idea what that will or won't look like right in 2024 but the police department has a lot of progress to make in terms of how how it manages things like that obviously since 1968 like the 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 complete low point of maybe in american history of how that was handled but uh it 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 still has a lot of challenges in today uh we saw that in 2020 with just management of of large crowds like that Mm -hmm. so you really hope something like that doesn't happen and if it does the police department has made enough progress on things like the consent decree to manage it effectively heather sharon has tweeted and uh, producer pete passed this along to me jb pritzker said today we are an ideal backdrop for the president and vice president to tell their stories pritzker says he is committed to making sure that the convention does not end in debt for the Democratic Party, but does not answer Marianne Ahern's question about whether he will write a check if necessary. Heather Sharon also tweeted about Brandon Johnson's encouragement to Joe Biden to bring the convention here 
I'm Steve Kerr, adding that he took the final shot in encouraging Biden to pick Chicago. He says he's no Jordan or Pippen, but he's a good team player. I don't think that it's necessarily uh, out of left field for Johnson to say that uh, maybe him winning the mayoral election did tip the balance in favor of Chicago, that there were good arguments for Atlanta and good arguments for New York. I will I will also say that if you read Steve Chapman's piece, Steve Chapman is back in the Tribune, by the way, uh, once a month now, which is just great news for readers. And uh, last week, his piece talked about how where the convention is doesn't I mean, it's like this idea like, oh, we're going to we're going to get votes. We're going to have that convention in in Chicago and, and people in Wisconsin are going to be so grateful they're going to vote for Joe Biden over Donald Trump or the Republican. I mean, that's nonsense. And, and, and of course, uh, Chapman had the receipts for that, too. It's like, it, it doesn't really matter where your convention is. It doesn't have any impact on the, on the results of the election. So, so that's all just you know, nonsense. So, you know, I, I think it's, it's good. The other thing I was going to say is that, that the last time we had the convention in Chicago, back in 96, it was out, it was out in the United Center. And I'm relatively sure that's where it's going to be. Again, I haven't seen that for sure yeah the united but, um, center and mccormick place yeah. both yeah yeah okay well the, well united center it's just it's sort of an isolated place they had protesters in a protest pen yeah where there was all That's like right. chain link fenced off and protesters could get in there and they could rally and the police kept a really good lid on disruptions i mean people were allowed to protest but they were essentially talking to themselves because they weren't out there getting in people's faces and disrupting things and that's, I'm pretty sure, going to be the, the battle plan this time as well, is to, is to try to keep the protesters away from the actual convention business, but, you know, technically allow them to speak. And, uh, you know, there'll probably be lawsuits filed about that. And this isn't the American way that you should have be able to speak to the people you want to speak to and so on. But but I'm guessing that we, that we showed in 96 that we learned the lessons of 68. That was 28 years later. And then another 28 years on. We're going to show again that we we know how to handle those situations. Uh, Austin mentioned the protests of 2020 and how those got out of hand. Those were downtown and they were really unanticipated. And they're going to have a a year now to get ready, more than a year to get ready for this. And um, I'm pretty sure they'll be be pretty good at it. Were you saying, though, Eric, that it doesn't matter where the Democratic National Convention is? Because I thought... Illinois is going to vote for the Democrat anyway. Better you be in Michigan or Wisconsin, one of those purple states in the Midwest, even in Ohio, or take a state where maybe you could, uh, you know, pull one out of the hat. Well, all I know is what Steve Chapman wrote, and he said he examined the data on this and looked back, you know, historical data on this, and said that it really makes no difference hmm. where the convention is. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, yeah, people people might get excited, like, oh, the Democrats are here. But is that really going to translate into very, enough, very many votes or enough votes to tip the Electoral College one way or the other in the state? It's, it's, it's really unlikely. Well, what, what will be interesting is the contrast, right, of the Republican National Convention, which will be, you know, 90 miles away in Milwaukee. And Wisconsin is a state with a Democratic governor and obviously a very large win for Democrats, uh, uh, you know, officially nonpartisan race, but a win for Democrats for, on the Supreme Court recently. Uh, that said, there is a supermajority uh, of Republicans in the legislature there. So I think their hope would be, yeah, that is sort of a, you know, a PR opportunity for Republicans in the state of Wisconsin holding their convention there. Uh, I th- my personal selfish interest for the DNC being in Chicago is that it is hopefully a national positive P- 
PR opportunity for the city of Chicago, and that would be great. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it's good for us. It's funny, though, because Wisconsin has a super majority in its houses because of the gerrymandering they do, like the gerrymandering we do here. Wisconsin is a 50-50 state, but (laughs) Democrats have no voice in their state government there. And I think you sense the frustration of voters or the people in Wisconsin because of that Supreme Court vote. It was 10 points. We talked about this last week. And it's just a reminder of how wrong gerrymandering is, but I'm on Team Zorn anymore, that we might as well keep doing it. I've always argued with Eric that we should be a leader and say, okay, Illinois will represent Illinoisans, and that would mean more Republican districts, more Republican seats in the Congress. But why give Republicans an advantage when they're not returning the favor. Well, that's my, 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 yeah, my thinking is that there's no point in Democrats unilaterally disarming yeah, when it comes right. to gerrymandering. And, and I would, but I would love to see a, a national, uh, some, some sort of a regulation put in or a law put in or a court ruling about this that would even things out so that states do much better at representing their population. I, I think it's a shame what that Illinois is so heavily tilted, it's super majority Democrat. Uh, and, and even though that, that's where I, that's the direction I lean, I still think that it's wrong that the Democrats uh, have such power in Illinois. But yeah. on the other hand, it's really wrong what happens in Wisconsin. So if, as long as we're talking about a lot of policies that get made nationally, including congressional seats, then I guess you just got to say, well, these are the rules of the game and we got to play by them, even though we don't like them. I think a solution there, too, is this is one of those problems where the status quo bias is so strong that it's it's very, very, very unlikely that that change is ever going to come from within Springfield or within Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, and the solution there is in uh, Illinois case. It's so difficult for citizens to get anything meaningful on the ballot themselves without relying on the vote of a politician. Uh, getting a citizen-initiated referenda is almost impossible statewide. That's This is one of those issues where it's sort of like you, you need a mechanism like that in order to to change it. There's It's just ve- it's very, very difficult. It's not impossible to do it through traditional politics. Neil Steinberg in the Sun-Times. We can finish this part of the conversation maybe just with something he wrote. We'd hoped he could join us today. He couldn't. But he wrote, bear in mind the boost to Chicago for getting the DNC is mostly illusory. Political conventions like Olympics are mostly money losers despite all the smoke and mirrors. Remember, we're a free society. A measure of protest is not only permitted, it is beneficial. And Chicago needs to balance accommodating the convention and the protesters, who are also staying in hotels and buying lunches too, though not as lavishly, and that they also represent democracy in action. I I wonder how accommodating the protesters are going to be, Eric, if they say, okay, you're over there and the convention is over here. I think they ought to be able to didn't they let them march down Michigan Avenue? They they do get to parade up and down the street, don't they? I don't I don't think they did back in '96. I don't remember that. I mean, certainly with some of the like the uh, the, what the G7 protests and so yeah. on. With the, 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 that was uh, we saw that coming in, in advance, and they did do some marches there. And there might be marches now. I, it, it's you know the, the social media is going to change things dramatically. '96, it didn't exist. 
So the ability for people to like-minded people to contact each other and to arrange for a meeting in some in some place and to arrange for marches is far greater than it used to be. It's not little leaflets tacked up to telephone poles anymore. It's it's uh, these networks can form. So I think you're going to have more in the way of organized protests, more in the way of things like marches and so on. Um, but again, I think the city is is going to be ready for that, and I certainly hope that they have figured out a way to accommodate protests without disrupting the business of the convention that would be my you know that that's the line that i would draw as a as a mayor or a police chief is like look these people have a right to speak they have a right to parade they have a right to you know but they don't they don't have a right to disrupt the actual proceedings of the convention and i'm confident they won't austin you were critical of brandon johnson for not assembling a transition team between him and the Lightfoot administration more quickly. Uh, how is that on your radar? How big of a deal is that? I don't know how I would gauge in terms of uh, how big of a deal it is, but I think it is notable. So if you look at the last four major new elected offices statewide in Illinois, that is uh, and statewide and, and the mayor. So Rahm Emanuel in 2011, uh, Bruce Rauner in 2016, um, Lori Lightfoot in 2019, and now Brandon Johnson in 2023. Those previous four offices announced who was running their government the day after they were elected or a couple days after they were elected. And this is important because changing administrations for a state and for a city the size of Chicago is an extremely involved process. You are swapping out, in most cases, uh, the majority of the heads of major city departments that are in charge of hundreds of millions of dollars budgets and then citywide billions of dollars budgets. So it, it is no small task. And it is really the number one thing that you should be uh, you should be doing as a new elected official after you are chosen. And Brandon Johnson did not announce that for a week after being elected. Uh, yesterday, he announced who was in charge of his inauguration, which is sort of like basically a party. Um, and it's it was basically every major Democratic elected official you could think of in the state of Illinois. And then several hours later did end up announcing his transition team. So I would say, you know, that's not a great sign. That was late. That was work turned in late. Uh, I'm, I don't think anyone should be, you know, dismissing Brandon Johnson out of hand just because of that. But it wasn't encouraging. It was not an encouraging first act as a as a new mayor. Um, and I think what's interesting about the folks that he picked is that you've been hearing, and I don't know where this is coming from, but a lot of people seem to have the idea that Tony Preckwinkle is the new Bill Daly and controls everything uh, in the city of Chicago and, and in Cook County. And while uh, Tony Preckwinkle is very powerful, that is not reflected at all in the transition team picks of Brandon Johnson. So if you go down the list, there's six officials. Uh, you have five of them in some way working for organizations directly funded or working in concert with the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, it is a heavily progressive union transition team. Um, and that's who Johnson is going to have governing his administration. It's really being picked by his largest funder uh, in the race and his biggest ground game. And that, that was the CTU. So this is the biggest fears of the Johnson skeptics really coming to light right away, right? Which is that they, people were afraid they didn't want the Chicago Teachers Union to be uh, on the fifth floor of City Hall. And it sounds like, from what you're saying about this, I, and I haven't seen the stories about this this transition team, but that it sounds like he is, uh, he, those fears are being realized. 
Yeah. So you go down the list. Um, Jessica Angus, she's the transition director. She was a founding member of United Working Families uh, and the vice president of SEIU. United Working Families is chaired by Stacey Davis Gates. She is in charge of it. C2 really founded the organization with the SEIU. Um, uh, Jason Lee, he's the policy and political director, essentially, for United Working Families. He is also on that team. Uh, Amisha Patel, she runs a grassroots collaborative. That is a group heavily funded by the Chicago Teachers Union Foundation. Um, Erica Bland, she was executive vice president of SEIU and another founding member of United Working Families. And then you have, uh, uh, I don't know how you pronounce his first name. It's spelled D-J-A-V-A-N, maybe Djavan uh, Conway, uh, Conway, and he is a paid lobbyist for the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, and then the final uh, member of the team is Maria Virginia Martinez. She is a uh, uh, his legal advisor and was formerly a counsel in Lori Lightfoot's office. So five out of the six members are really, you know, directly out of CTU's orbit on Johnson's Johnson's leadership team. Yeah. And you're more than discouraged by that, aren't you? Yeah, I just don't think it's balanced. Right. You see, um, I mean, J.B. Pritzker had even a Jim Edgar right on his transition team. Um, uh, Bruce Rauner had a lot of Democrats on his transition team. Same thing. Uh, Lori Lightfoot had, you know, folks from all different walks of life and experiences and political parties and factions, even on the left, uh, on her transition team. And I think that's really good. But what you see here is, you know, this is a, a very clear, um, very, very progressive, very CTU and SEIU dominated government. And the next thing we're going to find out is how that plays out in city council, who is going to be really the floor leader for Brandon Johnson. There have been talks of Carlos Ramirez Rosa, who's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, really being his uh, his floor leader. If that's the case, I mean, this is this is a very, very rapid shift left for the city of Chicago. If those are the people who are going to be in charge. Is Stacey, is Stacey Davis Gates going to have a role in his administration? Do we know of per se? No, it's not going to be. And I think she would be. Um, she's the head of uh, the uh, Chicago Teachers Union. She's the president of the Sh- Chicago Teachers Union. And Vice President Jackson Potter is also uh, a major leader there. I think they would be really silly to take any official role in the administration. And where their power is going to lie is in placing people like this into very senior leadership roles. Uh, and that's evidently what has happened. She's uh, very strident and very antagonizing and very divisive and very good for the union, maybe. But um, I don't know that the city's interests are best served by what you're describing as sort of the saturation of SEIU or CTU people. When Brandon Johnson was at the Blackhawks game, he was at the last home game for Jonathan Taves, it looks like. And they put him up on the big jumbo screen there, you know, mayor-elect Brandon Johnson. And the word I got was that at first, everybody was like, oh, hey, who's that guy? And then they go, oh, it's Brandon Johnson. And then they started to boo. Maybe 51% were boo- or cheering and 49% were booing, but it sounded more like... I think, that, I, I think that's what, what our uh, fellow rascal John Hansen, who is at every box game, he works the games as the, uh, the uh, in-arena host, he said that he made a joke like, 
it was 52% were cheering and 48% were booing, you know, something like that. So I don't know that the boos were overwhelming, Is that, is that, but you heard that it was. He hasn't been in office long enough to be disliked that much. He hasn't been in office at all. And he didn't, it wasn't a horrible, mean, nasty campaign. They each had their shots they were taking at each other. But, you know, there's no reason to dislike Brandon Johnson yet. He's got to learn the trick that, that Pat Quinn learned when he was governor, which is when you go to a ball game like this, you get introduced alongside a sports show. I remember when, uh, when, uh, when Quinn went to the, went to the uh, Blackhawks rally when they won the Stanley Cup. And it was like, and here, Patrick Kane and Patrick Quinn. And so what, what are you going to do in the audience? you got to cheer. It's Patrick Kane. And so everyone's cheering. And, oh, that's and a good idea. So, that's so, clever. Really? So that's, yeah, because so if, if you're an Illinois elected official and you go to a sporting event, yeah. you will. If your name's not Jesse White, honestly, <laughs> I, I think all of them are booed, right? I don't. I can't think of one that by themselves has been cheered, Eric. Unless it's something that's really in your wheelhouse. So I remember standing the year after Lori Lightfoot got elected uh, at the Pride Parade on Halstead, and here comes Lori Lightfoot, and it was like a celebrity. People were so excited to see her, but consider the place and time and the person. So she was really getting cheered there. Yeah, so I think, and this goes back to the transition team, his biggest challenge, uh, and he recognized this publicly, is to, quote, unite the city. And Given his margin of victory, that's going to be very, very difficult. And he has a very small margin for error in doing that. And I think this transition team is really his first official act. Yeah. Um, th- that is in no way signifying a uniting of the city. It is a uniting of a very uh, powerful but relatively small compared to the size of the city set of interests uh, on the progressive left in Chicago. What would have been a better hire then? Would uh, Pick something realistic here. You look at someone like a Joe Ferguson, right? A former inspector general, highly respected uh, public official, yeah. works uh, worked under several different administrations, good government, yeah. right? That's a, that's an interesting example of someone who would be be good for that. Um, uh, that's the first person that jumps to mind. We'll have to think. Maybe we could do a draft later. <laughs> well, uh, well, he, he, he might have thought about bring, trying to bring aboard some people from like like a Cam Buckner who did pretty well. In, Great example, in the, yeah. Uh, in, the, in, in the public opinion pollings, he didn't obviously do that well in the. In the and he was just a reminder. He was one of the nine candidates who ran for mayor in the first round. Uh, you know, scored in the single digits, but or or Sophia King, the people who did not endorse him in the general election, but who care about the city and who could offer some guidance and ballast and so on. I, I think it would have been really smart. I don't I don't know that you could have brought Dallas himself in. That might have just been too weird and chippy. But but some of these other uh, elected officials and, and soon to be former elected officials who came at the election with different viewpoints but not necessarily radically different views. I think they I think a, a lot of these people have the same goals for the city they want people to be safer they want people to be more prosperous they want them to be more educated and better housed have slightly different ideas about how to get that done and to bring those people aboard and talk about what might be done uh would be it would have been a much better idea i agree with that you saw the wgn story 60 percent of the people in a post-election survey said they favor attacking crime at the root cause rather than just more police on the streets. It was like 60-37 or 60-39 was the vote on that. End of the campaign, he was swearing up and down that he was not going to cut a single penny from the police budget. 
So it's not like it's not like there's these two radically different points of view. By the end, yeah, uh, Johnson was sticking up for, for significant police funding. So so and again, I, I don't think that there's necessarily a, a conflict between having you know stronger policing and also attracting attacking the root causes of crime. I think it's it's very important to recognize that crime is not just that doesn't just happen randomly and that it does need a, a multifaceted approach. I, I don't it doesn't surprise me that much. When Harold Washington was elected mayor, the percentage of people who turned out to vote, the percentage of eligible voters who cast ballots, you guys probably saw this, was almost eighty three percent. Yeah. It's truly crazy. I oh mean, my gosh. You look at the scale and people were like, yeah, I mean, Brandon, the last time we had an election this close was, uh, you know, uh, Bernie Epton and Harold Washington. But the actual margin of votes was so much bigger uh, for Washington because of the turnout was basically. And, and that was at a time when there was probably close to 300 to 500,000 more people in the living in the city of yeah. Chicago. Yeah. So it's just like a total difference. And even with with Lori Lightfoot, she won by a quarter million votes and Johnson will probably end up winning by closer to 30, 30 to 40,000 votes. So which it, is not a lot, not a lot. Um, well, interesting and, also to talk about 1983 to remember, I don't believe there was early voting back then. I don't think there was mail in voting back then. Really? I, I think we just voted on election day back then. I, as I remember now, of course it's, we go back. I did vote in that election. Yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. I, Eric and I, we, we talk off the air on the air. We talk uh, like on my radio show. We talk off my radio show. We talk on this podcast. And I'm like, wait a minute. Did we met, did we spend time last week describing how you couldn't vote after all was said and done? You, the, the great analyst that you are, you walked in, you, you got up, you brushed your teeth, you combed your hair, you went to vote and you, you didn't vote for anybody. That's if, if I'm saying that for the second time on this podcast, I still think that's a, a remarkable thing. Remarkable. That's a nice word for it. Uh, my readers at the Picky and Sentinel were uh, less charitable than that. They thought it was a real cop out. You know, but I, I, I stood there in, in the voting carol with my felt tip pen, and there's one question on the ballot, and I just I could not do say it. Say yes to uh, either, huh? And I couldn't say yes to either. And I feel like a vote, there's, there's got to be some affirmative quality to a vote. I, I didn't at the time, and I'm still very dubious about the, the uh, possibility that Brandon Johnson is ready to be mayor of Chicago. And I don't, I don't necessarily on board with all of his positions, and I had real reservations about ballots, and I just, I just turned it in, and the and the guy ran my machine. I dialed through the machine, and it came back as an undervote, which startled him because there's only one question. And he said, <laughs> "Wait a minute, you left your ballot blank?" I said, "I did," and he said, "Okay," and he gave me my "I voted" sticker, and I put it on. It's like. It's like a half a vote for each candidate, I guess. So. I voted <laughs> for um, neither. They don't have those uh, yeah. printed up. You voted for turnout. Other, I yeah. voted for turnout. I wanted I wanted to show up and show that I cared. And it was like a present vote, right? In the legislature, sometimes you have lawmakers who vote present. They don't want to vote either way. That was what I did. Hmm. Um, did Stacey Davis-Gates call? I thought I'd maybe, maybe I dreamt this. Did Stacey Davis-Gates give you any guff for that on Twitter, Eric? I thought I saw that. You know, I don't know. I, I, uh, I'm not looking at my mentions enough. She might have. If if she did, then join the club. So uh, that's. I was just okay. making sure. Oh, have okay. you? Were you the object of uh, um, some tweets from Stacey Davis? Oh my god! Yeah, I think she called me a gremlin or something. 
You know, another story that just got a lot of attention this week was the fact that Walmart is closing four stores at the end of this week, summarily closing four stores. They said that over the last 17 years, their portfolio of stores in Chicago have never turned a profit. They lose tens of millions of dollars a year. I I thought that Walmarts were like McDonald's used to be. If you get a franchise, you can't lose money. Walmart is so famous for busting the price down, and they've figured out how to deliver goods and services. I didn't think any Walmarts lost money. They said they're going to have to close stores if they can't rein in the problem of theft. They've been trying to get into bigger cities rather than just small towns and rural areas. But for 17 years, they've been losing money in Chicago. Do we steal more than other cities or other places? I I don't know if that's the case. And is it a coincidence that the week that Brandon Johnson wins as mayor of Chicago, Walmart pulls out? They were financial supporters of Paul Vallis. Is that all four stores in Chicago, are there other Walmarts? There's in four others. There's open? four others There's... that will stay open. They're going to try and keep four still in the city. It doesn't sound like a, a middle finger to Brandon Johnson to me, but but uh, I'd like to hear more about why they why they're losing money. Is it just they don't have the traffic? Is it is it theft? I, I it feels like the kind of thing would require. A, demand a little bit extra explanation, wouldn't it? Walmart has announced plans to close 19 stores. They closed them in the Washington, D.C. area. They closed some in Portland. Uh, Here's their statement. Collectively, our Chicago stores have not been profitable since we opened the first one nearly 17 years ago. These stores lose tens of millions of dollars a year. Their annual losses nearly doubled in just the last five years. Uh, People do tell me stories though about people just come in and they just take stuff they don't even care they just take stuff and walk right out the store but i got versions of that story from people who witness it in the suburbs as well they didn't they said crime was not a leading cause i think i saw in a crane's story so at least publicly they're not saying that it was due to some um inordinate amount of crime in chicago but this does speak to i think one part of the incoming mayor's agenda which is uh doubling youth employment and I think that was actually one of his promises within the first hundred days. That's of this right. That's right. Uh, and that is a very admirable goal. Uh, that that would be fantastic. But you you can't do that with government jobs. You need private sector growth in order to employ uh, young people in the city of Chicago. And this makes that harder to do. And I think one of the things that as Chicago has increasingly ratcheted up. Um, regulations around uh, that are considered pro-labor in the city of Chicago that many interests support, there is a point at which those become a burden on adding new jobs, especially for places like a Walmart, where people might say, well, Walmart is is made of money. They're richer than Croesus. They've got, you know, they're making money hand over fist. The reality is that these individual stores operate on insanely thin margins to be able to make any kind of money. Uh, and that is the case for a lot of small business, small businesses in the city of Chicago, businesses big and small in the retail space. So I think it is totally conspiratorial to think that this is a result of Brandon Johnson becoming mayor when I think some members of the Walton family funded ads 
that were uh, maybe anti-Johnson or pro-Vallis. I can't remember which because they engage a lot in school choice. That's a big the, the reality is, you know, yeah, you're a global you're the, you're the largest retail chain in in uh, in the U.S., you know, if not the world. And you don't make decisions like this in seven days to close four stories. You know, there's there's a lot of meetings you have to go through at a major multinational corporation like Walmart to to shut down four stores. That's kind of a big deal. If for 17 years they were operating those stores almost out of charity, <laughs> or at least out of hope that someday they were going to be able to turn the corner, I wish I knew that. I wish they would have told us, hey, guys, um, I, I don't know what we as a community would have done, but maybe they – Save the Walmart campaign. Uh, and I'm like telling you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's hard. It, you know, the numbers just – even the big picture numbers don't match up. Like, okay, I understand the grocery margins are insanely thin. And there's Costco and there's Target. There's other people competing for the same consumers. But those stores that, – that company makes a lot of money. Some stores have been locking up – products to keep the theft down. You notice that with razor blades for years. But even things like laundry detergent and underarm deodorant now get locked up in Walgreens or Target and at a, at a Walmart. If they say, okay, that will reduce theft, what it also does is it reduces sales. Because rather than get somebody to open up the underarm deodorant drawer for you, you just say, skip it, I won't buying it. And in fact, they lose more money when they lock stuff up than when they leave the stuff unlocked and let people steal. The shrinkage is, what is it, about 10% when the store is wide open, but the loss in sales approaches 25% in those categories when they when they lock the stuff up. All brick-and-mortar businesses right now that rely on any kind of foot traffic, it's really, really hard to, to make a buck. So... There are going to be lots of policy proposals that we see in Chicago over the next few months. One, just for an example, uh, we saw J.B. Pritzker uh, talk about the financial transactions tax, but there's another new tax proposal that would likely require some kind of change in Springfield on uh, residential uh, uh, transactions of property worth over a million dollars, right? Which in practice, it's like, man, someone can afford to sell a million dollars worth of real estate. Let's tax them more. But these are very slim margins again. And you look at a retail space for like a Walgreens or something that that's usually about a, a, a million dollar plus uh, piece of property there. So taxing, uh, tripling the tax rate on that transaction that has real effects on people's ability to, to get jobs. One last note here, fellas, and that is just we did this week see what the street closure proposal is for the NASCAR event when it comes here in the summer. And it's going to start like June 2nd, and it's going to go at least a week after the NASCAR street race in the city. It's not a massive close down uh, of everything right away. It'll first start as just parking restrictions. Well, good luck parking around Grant Park anyway. But then there will be closures. It's sort of like the convention or anything. You don't know how it's going to go until it goes. Um, so I'm trying to not just, you know, look on the bad side of everything here. But I'm, uh, I'm, I will be surprised if they're able to pull off this NASCAR thing um, and have the city happy for the what we gave them. Oh, no, it seems to me like we have a three-year commitment to do this. Yep. Like, it's not just the one year. And the, the closures of things like, they're going to be closing Lakeshore Drive for some period of time. Four now, days. Right? I mean, it's, Four uh, of the it's days. Not, not just the day of the race. And 
And I think that's going to re- be a real cluster of that uh, when they close Lakeshore Drive because there's a lot of traffic that goes through there. And I think people are going to be pretty sore about it. Uh, I'm very skeptical that 100,000 people are going to turn out to watch cars go in a circle, but uh, they might, they might. But but uh, I don't, I don't, I think this is a regrettable idea. That's, that's just my, that's my bottom line. To heed um, Steve Bertrand's call to not be a Debbie Downer about all of this stuff, I will say one argument I heard for it this week uh, was interesting, which is, Again, Chicago has a, a major public relations problem. And I think some people focus way too much on that and think if you're criticizing Chicago, you're a part of this problem of saying Chicago's awful. I think that's a false equivalence. But um, among sort of the Fox News viewing public, Chicago is the symbol of everything that is wrong with the left in America, right? And if you have a marquee event that those same people watch, and there's beautiful aerial shots of downtown, and there's people drinking beer and being happy, that could be great. Like that's a that's a really good PR opportunity for the city of Chicago. Um, I, I don't think I'll argue with that. Uh, but again, like as we've talked about, it is this was a unilateral decision by an outgoing mayor who will not be mayor for these three years and was signing deals that nobody in the public had access to or an ability to vet before doing. And now we're stuck with this, whether we like it or not. I don't know that Brandon Johnson has the ability to change that, right? Like, didn't Rahm Emanuel try and change the parking meter deal that he inherited? They are asking Brandon Johnson about, does he think he can save the Bears? And one of his lines was, I grew up in a house with 10 kids and one bathroom. I am an amazing negotiator. So um, he's... He's not given up on the hope that he can't entice the Bears to stay downtown, um, to stay at the lakefront. Uh, uh, That's interesting. But, like, yeah, it, it's like if, uh, hey, I'm a vendor who supplies the uh, the red plastic trays at McDonald's and the CEO promised me a, a five-year deal to supply the trays. There's a new CEO. Guess what? The contract's still in place. Like, it's the same thing with the city of Chicago. If a mayor is signing these deals on the city's behalf, we're kind of stuck with it. And that it's really unfortunate. Uh, and, and I think the, the city will come to regret that, if not on the NASCAR deal, on something else. Yeah. Well, but like, let's not be a Debbie Downer. Let's. Uh, <laughs> and, and by the way, I think you're absolutely right that people watch NASCAR have made up their minds about Chicago, not having been to Chicago. Uh, we've been talking about it all the time on my radio show about people afraid to come into the city. And, um, I got a note, but 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 I often get something like this. I got an email or text message from somebody today. The National Letter Carriers Convention was in Chicago. Uh, it might have been last summer, last year they were here. So there's thousands of people from all around the United States in Chicago, and the buzz on the floor and amongst the people that came into the city was. What a clean city. What a beautiful city. What a great city. And if only thing they knew about Chicago was what Fox News told them Chicago is like, or Donald Trump told them was like, or their fears told them Chicago was like, they never would have come. They, they, they couldn't believe what a great time it was. And I hear that all the time. If I'm hanging out at a restaurant or at a bar and I'm chatting with somebody sitting across from me, they go, oh, this sounds this is terrific. We're having a good time here. Think about the images that if you're one of those people and that is your media diet or, or even just your cultural diet, what images have you seen of the city of Chicago over the last 10 years? It's almost entirely crime scenes and protests, I think. Like, I, I don't know in, in that you know, or maybe like uh, like a like a Dick Wolf show or something. Right. Or, or like a, a 
not Dick Wolf. Who's the guy? Chicago Fire, Chicago PD. Yeah, is that all that. Um, I'm looking at the guys, and they Who's say the yes. Guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is okay. Yeah, so maybe, maybe you've seen some of that stuff, but like or the bear, right? It's yeah, right or the bear, right? So you've seen people yelling in a like a greasy <laughs> restaurant or people, people getting murdered. So like, it's really I, what it's has been great. what has been the blanket exposure Chicago got? We haven't been in the World Series since 2016. The Bears don't uh, think about that if. If NASCAR comes around, and if we pull off the DNC without any hitches, and Lollapalooza goes well, uh, those are things that could go badly, but could also go very well. Kind of like a podcast. That's all the time we have. It looks like Eric has clicked out. Are you still over there, Mr. Zorn? He had an event he had to go to, and we had exactly until 3.30 to record this. It's now 3.29 and 30 seconds. So I feel like uh, everybody needs to get outside. We've had like the four best days of April I can maybe ever remember in the city. <laughs> like Saturday, Sunday, Monday, today have all been amazing. So get outside. I'll probably go to the NASCAR thing. I don't know if, you, if you're going down. I think I would. I, well, I, I, I work just down the street from it for one thing. Hey, I watch the F1 series on Sunday mornings, and I watch NASCAR on Saturdays when it's convenient for me. So let's wrap it up. Thank you, Eric Zorn, who just had to click out. Austin Berg. We're produced by Ben Anderson and Pete Zimmerman. And I'm John Williams. We'll drop another podcast on you next week. Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify, or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 